Hello, Omis. Welcome to this week's community interview. This week, uh, I'm on the line with uh, Asfi. Hello, Asfi. How are you going? Doing great, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. And our special guest this week, who Asfi's agreed to interview uh, with me, is John Wu. Um, hi, John. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Um, so, John uh, did a really great thread. Uh, back was it was it in April or I don't remember. Yeah, Asfi? it was in April. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was April. And um, Asfi, it caught Asfi's eye, and you might want to tell us why it caught your eye so much, Asfi. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I mean, I think before, during the due diligence phase, which lasted quite a while for me, uh, I, I read through a bunch of threads, uh, and, and John's thread was one of them, but then. With that, I started reading all the other stuff he was posting. And, you know, and I've also now written a whole bunch of threads myself. But like when I just compare everything on balance, I think what he had put together was just really, really great and comprehensive. So uh, in my books, it's still the best thread I've read. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so, John, do you um, mind telling us a little bit about your background? I know you worked at... Um... Well, I don't know if you're <laughs> the things I know are things you want the public to know. So maybe you can just tell us whatever you're happy to share about your background. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you can't see me, Asfi, but definitely blushing after that intro. Um, let's see. I was a philosophy undergrad. My joke is that I still ended up a management consultant. I did that for a few years. I was in private equity as an investor for a few years and went to business school so very much one of the suits and i discovered crypto relatively recently after i had shut down a non-crypto startup back in february and during the month i was shutting down the startup i decided i was going to start tweeting and my original topic because i'm also a real estate investor was covering real estate and quite frankly no one cared about anything i had to write so I quickly transitioned into my other passion, which is newly developed crypto. And one of the early projects that caught my eye was Ohm. And we can get into kind of the why and the how, but the headline really is I got a text from a friend saying, hey, you know, 200,000% APY farm, you got to check this out right now. And anytime I see something that sounds too good to be true, I feel like I need to dive in. And that's kind of all she wrote. And the thread on Ohm was actually, you know, one of the first pieces that I wrote on crypto Twitter that put me on the map. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, so so you're sitting in a park, someone texts you, they're like, check out this farm. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Zeus doesn't like to call it farm. He calls it staking rewards, you know, very, it's not yield farming. Um, of course. But, <laughs> but um, the, so, so then you, you did check it out, obviously. Um, would it, did you start sort of check it out and then say, oh, I should write something about this? Or um, did you sort of um, spend a while checking it out? How long was that sort of process for you? Because it's quite complicated, obviously. <laughs> So one of the things that I did early in my crypto journey was kind of just ape immediately. So in this situation, if you can believe it, I just aped a small amount immediately. And if you'll recall, this was kind of during the first, I would say, 40 hours prior to the first community call. Um, 
Ohm was super volatile and actually dropped in price significantly over the course of that period and subsequently recovered. Um, but it was actually the pain of it falling that caused me to dig much, much more deeply. And I would not necessarily recommend this to other people, but I have found that inducing pain is a really uh, effective way to get you to deeply understand something. Um, it's something that they say in sports, right? You don't ever learn from your wins. You only learn from your losses. And so I joined the community call. I got super deep. And once I understood it, I actually put a lot more in. And so, yeah, that's kind of the early story. Very cool. Um, yeah, I think that's the kind of, I like tell myself that I'm a very sort of sophisticated investor, but I find that I only actually understand things after I have money online and have to go read about them. Um, exactly. Yeah, I would, I would agree actually. I mean, for me, I, um, I did end up doing, uh, a ton of DD, uh, before, uh, going in. In fact, John, I mean, I've been a private equity fund manager, as well in a past life so i can relate quite a bit with your background um but yeah no for me it was quite a bit of dd but having said that i think the amount of the amount that i've learned since investing is just definitely a lot greater than uh, than before investing uh and uh, ever since i got in you know i've heard this term quite a bit ape first then do dd uh which is uh, which is quite fascinating but um you know on on that on that note john um you've uh, you know one one thread you wrote that i want to like just start with and just dive a bit deeper into um it was it was a lovely conceptual thread that you that you wrote about um three myths of our of our monetary system and um i i i just like you to talk a bit about that about you know what made you write it um, and, you know, if you can just uh, summarize a bit of it for our listeners, uh, because I think a lot of it, understanding the three myths that you talked about is relevant for Ohm and for Omis. Yeah, absolutely. So the thread that covers the three myths is, and the three myths are one, that banks lend out deposits. Uh, in other words, that they take your deposits and then lend them back out and make a spread not really how it works. Um, the second that the Fed quote unquote prints money or creates money and that there's something called the money multiplier that's the inverse of bank reserve ratios. And it's I, I'm happy to get into why I think these misconceptions exist, but this was inspired by an old Bank of England PDF that they released kind of dispelling some of these myths that I encourage nearly everyone to read. It's very accessible um it's it would probably take a normal person you know like an hour to read even someone with very little macroeconomic background so i mean the typical story with money that we're taught in elementary school is you or grandma puts a deposit in the bank and the bank pays her a rate in order to attract her funds the bank then takes that deposit and lends it out at a higher rate and that's how banks make money and in fact, the story starts with the loan itself. The loan isn't subsequent to the deposit. The loan is actually what creates the deposit. If you're a business and you draw or open a loan from the bank, the proceeds from that loan are placed into a depository account. Um, so that's the first myth, right, is actually the creation of credit is the creation of money. 
And that's related to the central bank. The central bank doesn't really print new dollars. Um, the banks kind of do. The banks actually control the money supply. The way the Fed or the central bank controls the supply of money is it adjusts the cost of borrowing. It adjusts the bank's cost of borrowing, um, which subsequently affects individuals and businesses' cost of borrowing. And that's, uh, you know, the interest rate that's set, um, you know, the risk-free rate that's set by the Fed. And so if you think about how the Fed operates, it really is trying to adjust demand for money using an interest rate rather than, you know, money printer go burr, which is kind of the meme. Um, and the other thing to add here is that, you know, attracting depositors is a lot harder than attracting borrowers. You know, borrowers react very quickly to a rate change. Um, it's not really clear to me exactly why, but I suspect this kind of has to do with um, like loss aversion, right? If the rate on money changes very quickly, and let's say you're a homeowner with a mortgage, it makes a lot of sense. You can kind of see the dollars in front of you. Um, attracting depositors by changing savings rate is uh, much less clear. And I think we're seeing that a little bit in crypto now as you know rates kind of go up and down. And it's, it's not super clear that uh, uh, a, a rate change draws like significantly more liquidity instantaneously, whereas borrow rates um, are a very powerful lever in changing money. Um, so yeah, happy to get into why I think some of these myths exist, but I think I was mostly inspired by that bank of America piece or the bank of England piece. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I think that's, I think that's right about the sort of, uh, the rate, the payout rate, um, the interest rate that you're receiving is less effective. And I think we see that in sort of liquidity staying on Ethereum and not moving off to say, um, I mean, you do see it a lot, but um, there's a lot of liquidity that just is sticky to Ethereum and doesn't move to those other chains. Um, so one of the things uh, we discussed before this was the reason why you think this is important, um, sort of these myths about money. And you mentioned that um, it, it means the, the banks control the money supply and not the Fed. Um, I just wanted to kind of understand what you meant by that a little bit more, if, if you're willing to share. Yeah, so I think the common misconception is that the Fed can dramatically increase money supply directly by just printing new bills. Um, and that's not true. There's kind of an indirect relationship where it sets a reference rate. And then the market, uh, there's... A, the market looks at that price of money and then determines how much it wants to borrow. But the banks are kind of the agents of the money creation. Um, so I think what's interesting potentially in crypto is thinking about kind of capital efficiency, right? And relating it to our existing system. So we kind of look at the central bank and we say, wow, that's like the most capital efficient thing ever because you can create a ton of credit that's totally unbacked. Right. If you look at the federal deficit and the federal debt, it's not really backed by anything but the quote unquote full faith and credit of the U.S. government. And so I think it's important for us to realize when we're trying to replicate real world systems, you know, what the history of those real world systems are so that, n number one, we don't make some of the mistakes inherent in the existing system. 
and two that we understand that if the goal is the same you know to adjust our methods to achieve those goals so in the case for instance of capital efficiency there's really no uh there's no system that's as long-standing as the U.S. government within crypto. And so I think that's what makes true algo stablecoins very fascinating to me is bootstrapping that faith over um, a, a period of time. No, absolutely. I think the other, the other part that I think you touched on briefly that I'm finding phenomenally fascinating is, you know, just seeing how um, uh, market react response to um, policy changes uh, that are made uh, at Olympus, like uh, whether when a when the rewards rate is reduced or the bond control variable for one of the bonds is changed, um, it's really interesting to see how capacity gets created for um, other types. I, I'm guessing by now, John, you're you know deeply familiar with with. Uh, with how these policy levers work so uh, but but that has been really really interesting to see I'm curious um, you know how deep you've gotten in uh, with Olympus Um, is it uh, do you spend much time uh, observing on a regular basis uh, our dashboard and decisions that are being made that are impacting um, uh, I would say things like liquidity in the system I do watch the dashboards and uh, do try to keep up with the OIPs. Um, So, yeah, I'm very keen to observe this social experiment. I think the other thing to add, and I'm sure we'll discuss this later in the podcast, is, you know, if you think about the way the U.S. government raises money, it's economic, but there's also a behavioral or cultural environment, right? If you think about in World War II when the U.S. government raised war bonds, it was very much seen as a duty, right? It was a is a patriotic act. And I think Ohm kind of plays with that idea. We were on with Tex. Uh, I, I had a conversation with Tex the other day in our weekly white paper group in New York. And we were discussing how even when the bond discount goes negative, so when there's a bond premium on Ohm, uh, specifically for those who don't follow, you know, committing a certain amount of collateral, and rather than getting a discount on Ohm, paying a premium to purchase Ohm, there are still people who participate in the bond program. So there's something here culturally to me that says, you know, Omis are aligned in a way that speaks to values or principles beyond pure economic interest, because it feels almost purely irrational to uh, exercise a bond. I mean, maybe if you have very strong feelings about ohm's volatility over the course of the coming weeks like if you really think ohm is going to price it is going to spike maybe you'd be willing to pay a premium um but it, it's always surprising to me when behaviors like that exist yeah very cool um i i i, I really think that's uh, a good example of um sort of the, the thing that's sort of special happening here like we can't quite get at what it is but we know there's something um so just with bonds uh for those who don't know um you can purchase uh ohm directly from the protocol uh for usually a discount um to uh which is set by the policy team the discount rate um and um by a volume metric, and then those bonds vest in Ohm over a period of five days. Um, so, um, 
I just want to go back to the sort of true algo uh, stables, and I think they're so interesting. Um, have you been involved in any algos? Which which ones are kind of the ones you're most interested in? I haven't been uh, involved in the projects directly, but I covered Fay Protocol. I've covered Frax, and I've covered Iron Titan, most of which are non-fully backed algo stables. Um, so those are kind of the projects that I've been closest to in terms of my Twitter coverage. Very cool. Um, so uh, I just wanted to uh, talk about sort of these misconceptions in the banking system um, and, and sort of why you think these kind of myths or memes have sort of propagated over time in the first place like why why do we why do we why well why do we think these things i suppose yeah it's a great question i wonder if they're easier to teach i mean even this idea of the reserve ratio is taught at harvard business school among people with a lot of business experience and who are expected to be leaders and executives in the business world and so i wonder if it's simply more intuitive and um, it's just a convenient story. So, for instance, when you're five years old, your parents give you a piggy bank and you fish the change out of the sofa and you put it in the piggy bank. And now you've, you immediately understand savings and deposits, right? That's very intuitive, even from a young age. And in fact, I don't even think interest is that hard to understand as a concept. I put in a certain amount of money today and I get more out tomorrow. And it's easy to kind of hand wave the why. I think in the real story where money gets instantly created out of thin air by a bank via credit creation, that feels much, much less intuitive. So if I'm a business and I want to open a business line of credit or I want to open a term loan and let's say it's $100,000, that that liability uh, shows up on my balance sheet. And then I also instantly create $100,000 of cash assets. And I think teaching that to children, uh, and maybe even adults, it, it just feels really unintuitive. It makes it, it makes it um, almost disorienting to be like, oh, you can kind of manufacture money out of nothing. And if you think about it, that's kind of what a lot of stablecoin protocols do, right? They're kind of manufacturing money out of nothing by, you know, Maker is a really good example, by accepting collateral, opening a loan, and there you go, money's been created. Um, so I, I really think it's an intuition thing. Yeah, it's almost like you want to reject it, like you can understand it, but the the meme in your mind is still that that is money, um, even if you do understand it. Totally. I think, I mean, I, yeah, that I, I, I agree with that. I find like, uh, you know, I mean, even the first time I think it's, you must have, you guys must have seen this documentary, The Ascent of Money. And this has generally been like some really good content produced about the notion of money. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a challenging concept to, I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a deviously uh, complex concept and also super simple uh, all at the same time, uh, which, which makes it, uh, which makes it really interesting. Um, I just want to briefly, John, go back to uh, what you said about uh, the negative discount. I mean, for me, like I, they've been surprising for me as well. And at some level, I've wondered that, you know, I mean, are, are people just 
buying them because they're not aware or, you know, is it really, um, or are they doing it? I mean, are they, are they making a mistake or are they doing it intentionally? And that's something I've, uh, I've struggled with. Um, and, and which brings me to something that, you know, I asked you uh, on Twitter uh, some time back that, you know, what surprises you the most about, about Olympus? Uh, after uh, Since you've written your thread, we've grown a lot. We just closed 100. Now we have $100 million in the treasury, which uh, of 35 million of which is uh, stable coins. So, you know, it's going great guns. Uh, and I asked you, hey, what surprised you the most? Uh, and you said that it's working and you wrote a response after that. Could you elaborate on that? Uh, and even also what continues to surprise you about Olympus? Yeah, I think this is the thing that is long-term most exciting about Olympus. So why does it surprise me that it's working? Because it's really an exercise in uh, human coordination. And so let's talk about that 3-3 meme that Olympus is known for and I think is a really core part of the coordination puzzle. Um, and the 3-3 comes from uh, essentially a collective action problem called the prisoner's dilemma. And for those who aren't familiar with the prisoner's dilemma, it's pretty straightforward. It's a scenario in which their two prisoners have been captured. They're kept in separate jail cells and each is essentially given an offer. And the offer is to rat out their co-conspirator. And the way the outcomes play out is if one rats out the other, but the other stays mum, so does not if A rats out B, but B does not rat out A, then A gets off scot-free and B goes to prison for a really long time. If they both rat on each other, um, they both get heavy prison terms. And if neither rats, then they both get light prison terms. And so kind of the uh, Nash equilibrium Pareto optimal outcome is for both to rat on the other because it's always superior to kind of give up your co-conspirator than to stay mum. You could go to prison for a really long time if the other person defects. And we kind of see these collective action problems throughout society. And like once you start looking for them, you see them everywhere. Like overfishing is a really good example, right? If everyone fishes more than they're allowed, the oceans get overfished and we all starve. But if we somehow work together and everyone fishes under some, you know, mutually agreed limit, then we have sustainable fisheries and everyone wins. So the key thing here is that it's always better for the individual to do something that's worse for the collective. And with Ohm's case, there are really three strategies. Uh, one is to sell, right? One, if you're an Ohm holder, you can sell. The second is to stake. And the third is to bond. Now, there's probably a fourth strategy that isn't really discussed because it's hyper-irrational, which is to hold Ohm and just do nothing with it and not stake and not bond. Um, but in every case, like it makes a lot of sense once you've accrued sufficient rewards uh, to unstake your Ohm and to just dump it on the open market. On the other hand, the protocol would not be where it is now if it weren't able to retain its premium. And the premium can only be retained if everyone essentially chains their hands to the desk and says, we're not going to sell. We're going to continue to stay staked. And that entire origin story of like stake it and forget about it is 
ultra fascinating to me because there were many, many points in Ohm's life where it easily could have been rational for everyone to unstake, for early adopters to have taken a 5 or 10x you know, on their original Ohm position. And instead, it just hasn't happened. And it's one of the most fascinating things to me that it hasn't. Because if you think about the way Ohm works, if everyone were to sell at once, the premium above risk-free value would collapse. And then the protocol would not be able to really earn revenue by selling Ohm through the bond market. And if it's not able to earn revenue, then it's not able to supply high APYs. And if it's not able to supply high APYs, then there's, again, further no reason for anyone to stake. So this type of kind of collective collusion, even when it's really a powerful incentive for any individual to sell, um, is wild. Uh, and, and I think if you can solve these types of collective action problems in this test environment of Olympus, then I think you can potentially solve, you know, any of our really big collective action problems like inequality or climate change or, you know, racism. There's there's many, many uh, and discrimination. There's many situations in which an individual actor can act in a way that's worse for the collective. Although one thing I'll just say like as a follow on, like one thing that I find really unique about Olympus is that if people do sell and staking percentage goes down, then the APY shoots up and, um, you know, not all else being equal. And like that for me has been a really interesting mechanism. I, I, I even I've even like written a thread where I speculated that, you know, what would happen if everyone sold? I mean, just price completely goes tumbling down, like staking percentages down single digits, what happens? Well, the rewards rate will go through the roof because uh, the way it's calculated is that rewards is is calculated based on total supply, but then it's only paid to the stakers. Um, and so that, to, to a great extent, does also, uh, you know, keep... I'm, I'm curious to hear you elaborate a bit more on that, right? Because it's not just the meme. There's also this mechanism that, like, you know, causes rewards to shoot up as soon as people sell. Yeah, and I think that's a great that's a great point, and it is something that um, is adjustable as a as a policy measure, right? Um, that's uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's only true um, because the runway will be shortened. If if I'm no no um, I'm not no mistaken. actually um, so basically the I mean the way your APY gets calculated so in all even for a given reward rate. And the way like your uh, APY gets calculated, um, you'll take, uh, you basically take your rewards rate, you divide it by the percentage that's staying staked, and then you further divide that result uh, to only account for the circulating supply as opposed to the total supply. And the formula gets a bit messy, but without any policy change, what you what you should see, is, and we saw it recently, we saw some sell down recently, and what happened was that you know, um, in the sell down recently, the 15,000% APY shot up to 20,000% because staking went from like, I don't know, 93% to 88, 87%, something like that. Um, that's just automatic. Um, uh, I mean, you know, like without any uh, policy measure. And, and so it, and even the way the runway is calculated, runway assumes no new revenue coming in. So what Runway is saying is if bonds completely go to zero, 
um, you know, what will the protocol do? It'll just pay out the rewards. And the only thing that the rewards rate will then do is it'll just determine the speed at which those rewards are paid out. Right. Yes, that totally makes sense. Um, I think I'm thinking about kind of in a longer term, if that premium collapses, the ability for the protocol to continue generating Mm. sustainable revenue. Oh, no, totally. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, for me as well, right, like, um, I found the, I mean, I find inception to be super interesting here, right? Because, I mean, we know the rules of the game are, okay, if the price of Ohm is above $1, we're going to issue more Ohms. If the price of Ohm is less than $1, we're going to buy back, in both cases, making a profit. However, however, I mean, um, there's only so far we can go if the price is below $1 because basically there's only so much we can buy back. And so it was really important. I mean, something I, I do feel like something magical did happen um, in the initial stages. Uh, this is one guy on Twitter. Uh, I'm forgetting his handle, but he, he said something like that, you know, they caught lightning in a bottle. I, I do think something pretty neat happened at inception that just kind of, launch this experiment right and like i feel like now it's kind of i I mean getting things started is the hardest thing right like getting a monetary system to go from zero to one is so hard um and that's something i'd like you to speculate on john like i mean uh you know you did a bit but would love for you to like uh you know uh share a bit about you know, um, that that initial period, I, I do think it sounds like you got involved initially, and then you also saw the period when there was that initial collapse. Um, talk to us a bit more about that. I mean, what were you reading? What were you thinking about? Also, like, what helped you build conviction? Because you said earlier when we started that you had bought in a bit, then you did a ton of DD, then you saw the price crash, then you learned more, and then you bought more. Like, what's, what's going on for you over there? Yeah, I think there were a couple pieces of education in the beginning when the communication wasn't hyper clear. And I think this was a good example of the community saying, you know, there's something here, right? Like, even when it wasn't that well communicated in the beginning, I think early holders knew there was something something here. And I think that curiosity led to a lot of conversation in the Discord about, okay, how does this thing work, right? And one of the unintuitive things about Ohm is you get paid in S-Ohm rebasing. So you have a growing and compounding claim on more and more Ohm. It's not, you're not compensated in the typical manner, which is number go up. Typically you buy a token, and even now I saw this misconception on Twitter. Somebody responded to me on Twitter and they were like, can you give me a price prediction? And I don't think, I think that misses what Ohm is fundamentally about, right? Which is not price appreciation, but inflation is being a liquidity black hole, absorbing assets and then issuing Ohm against them. And so I think that clarification early on was really heartening for me, which was like, okay, it's expected that the price will collapse over time and get closer and closer to its risk-free value. Those two things should converge or get closer. The risk-free value will grow and the market cap will, or not the market cap, but um, uh, yes, the market cap will come down to kind of meet the the risk-free value that's being accrued by the treasury. And so I think those were some of the things that helped me build confidence um, when some of the early dynamics, like number going down, feels 
really bad and unintuitive for someone who's trained on holding a token that you expect to, you know, 10x or something over the course of the first couple weeks of launch. Do you think the um, kind of mechanics, not the mechanics, but kind of the game theory um, of Ohm or there's like it changes anything when you introduce sort of uh, leverage? So recently we've had uh, Abracadabra money. Uh, They've sort of started accepting uh, staked Ohm as an asset and then you can borrow against it and then you can borrow against it for more uh, ohm stake that ohm uh, and then go through the cycle um, do you think the psychology changes there and maybe you don't even don't have an, any opinion on it at all but yeah I'd be curious to hear your thoughts I actually haven't played around with that yet I know Rari also I believe has a fuse pool that accepts SOM yeah, as collateral mm-hmm. um, I think one of the crazy magical things about SOM is if you believe in its stability then the um the the loan should deleverage at a extremely fast rate right and so let's say you open with a relatively conservative you know 50% LTV so you're two times over collateralized well given that the current APY on SOM is somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000%. Your loan is going to deleverage ultra quickly as long as you believe in uh ohm stability. And so I actually think that's a could be a very magical financial product um and and we haven't yet seen the potential. Yeah, very interesting. Um of course listeners, uh Agora's position is that uh Borrowing against your collateral at this stage in the project is very dangerous and you shouldn't shouldn't do it. Um, and we hope that anybody that is doing it understands all the risks because we have seen more than 50% drawdowns in the price, which would mean you get liquidated. Um, sorry, Asfi, did you? Oh, no, I was just going to add that I've seen, uh, I mean, the once, I mean, you know, I, I hosted a, like an info session with Brian a couple of uh, days back. He, he, it's one of the strategies that I have seen, John, that might be interesting for you as well. Like what's happening is some of the, some people who are like, you know, literally who play this like a video game and they're, they're a fascinating bunch. They've adopted like what they're calling like a 4-4 or a 9-9 strategy, which basically means you lever up, you wait for the bond discount to grow more than the five days taking reward. Uh, you basically um, sell your staked home immediately uh, by the bond and then you uh, keep staking it each day. And 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 in that, you're actually taking very little price risk on home. Uh, you're basically just taking uh, a risk on the discounts. Um, so what I'm getting at is like, I mean, some players uh, have like, you know, have found a very interesting way to play uh, but that game can only be played or that game gets played well when um, the five-day return on a bond ends up being greater than uh, the five-day return you get for staking. Um, and that's a that's a pretty like interesting little development. And I just thought I'd share that. That's really interesting. And I'm staring at the dashboard right now. And for reference, the five-day uh, staking rate is 7% approximately. And the highest bond discount is 
3%. So they, that's the thing, right? And that's why I say it's a game because some of these guys, uh, they watch it like hawks. Uh, it's a very, it's yeah. a competitive game. And if you even go to the dashboard, which is also pretty cool. Uh, I, I just love the dashboard. I love the numbers this thing keeps spitting out. You'll see the fluctuation in the bond discount. And that's because... Um, I mean, bonds, uh, they decay over a five-year period. So, like, it'll always kind of fluctuate uh, back and forth. And so you've got, like, these bond snipers that are literally just, like, waiting. I mean, some of them probably, I mean, I'm sure you could, like, make a bot or something that can do that. But it's, like, a pretty competitive game to spot these discounts uh, at, the, at the right time. And over time, what you've also seen, what I've also seen which is pretty cool, and then I'm going to stop just nerding out about trends, is that you've seen this discount coming down over time. Uh, so you do see some uh, pretty interesting efficiencies uh, that are coming in. And, and, and these, I would say, um, uh, these opportunities are getting arbitraged away. That's fascinating. Mm, yeah, it's a pretty fascinating community. But um, yeah, yeah. No, so, so you know, for us, John, I mean, obviously, you know, liquidity is such a huge topic. Um, you know, I uh, I was telling the other day, uh, we've got about 1.2, 1.3, roughly 1.3 million ohms in circulation. And, you know, uh, about 21% of those were, were spent on, on liquidity bonds to buy and uh, acquire or acquire and maintain liquidity. Um, and, you know, it's this whole notion of acquisition of liquidity or measuring liquidity, unit of liquidity. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, again, a deviously complex topic. You wrote um, a thread um, that's, that's pinned to your uh, Twitter account on, uh, on impermanent loss. And, uh, you know, could you could you just elaborate on that? Could you just elaborate for us, you know, um, what you um, how you think about liquidity and uh, just generally your take on Ohm's approach on protocol owned liquidity? And how does that compare with other liquidity provisioning techniques that you see in DeFi? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it might make sense to go and think about the history of constant function AMMs and why they were invented. And it was largely as a liquidity bootstrap mechanism. So maybe let's back up even further and say that for these crypto economic systems to work, there need to be markets of exchange for the tokens themselves. But kind of the old world was order book based systems, which require third party market makers to make the market in a really thin liquidity market, for instance, like a newly launched token, um, it's very hard to convince market makers to come in uh, and, and set pricing, make the market. And so I think the invention of CFMMs was largely a way to say, as long as you have enough capital, you can make a market for your token. And of course, the price of that token is super critical for a bunch of tokenomic levers. So then the next question was, well, how can we be more capital efficient with that liquidity, right? How can we make sure that um, instead of spreading the liquidity out from zero to infinity, you know, potentially we can concentrate the liquidity and that's where you get things like Uniswap V3 and Integral and, you know, Sushi's upcoming concentrated liquidity protocol. Um, you kind of need this capital to make the market. And the way you attract the capital historically has been through liquidity mining. So, as a reward for making the market for the token, and again, that market is super critical, 
um, you know, think about like Ohm, for instance, you need a well-priced market to set the Ohm premium above its fundamental value. And then a lot of Ohm's revenue is based on that Delta. So you need the market for Ohm to even function as a product. And that capital to make the market, you can think of it as kind of working capital if you think about it from a corporate finance perspective. There's a certain amount of capital you need to just run the business, right? Like in a retailer's case, it's like cash in the till, right? You need some cash in the till just so that when your customers come in, you can give them change. Kind of same idea. You kind of need the cash in the AMM. You need the cash in the liquidity pool to kind of run the market for your token. And so what happens with liquidity mining and paying people to offer capital is that's it's very flighty capital. You know, yes, I will contribute some of my capital for outsized rewards, but that kind of distorts incentives. Like the only reason I'm coming to provide liquidity or protocol is because I expected to get paid for it. And as the rewards decay, I'm no longer as strongly incentivized. And then I'm just going to leave. Most people are just going to leave. And the higher the reward, the more flighty the capital, right? If you gave people insane rewards, like insane, insane rewards, like let's, let's assume that you gave people liquidity mining rewards that were, you know, thousands and thousands of times their capital per day or something crazy like that. You can imagine the type of person you would attract is someone who's really just there to collect the rewards and then leave. And so are you really bootstrapping your liquidity in a sustainable way? I mean, we've seen with other stable coins where extremely high rewards lead to rugging situations. And so if the protocol does not control that liquidity, a liquidity provider who comes to collect those rewards, right? A yield farmer who comes to collect those rewards, once they determine I've collected sufficient amount of reward, it instantly became, becomes a game of chicken. Who can kind of get out first and initiate the bank run? And so we kind of saw that with Iron Titan that was paying, you know, multi-hundred percent APRs um, on their yield farms is we had some really big whales withdraw their LP and, and then dump um, the governance token side of the LP. And so this is a classic rug and it happens for two really, really uh, bad reasons. One the withdrawal of liquidity makes it so that there's higher price impact for any given trade. So it makes the price of the token much more sensitive to trading. And two, initiating a super large market order is going to push the price down. And now what happens is because of the dynamics of impermanent loss, where if one side of the pool approaches zero, the whole value of your LP approaches zero, every liquidity provider is going to want to get out as soon as possible. What you don't want to do is be the guy left holding the bag at the end when the whole pool is worth zero because everyone has kind of withdrawn the beauty of ohm you know bonding its own liquidity and having it be protocol controlled is that it can't be rugged no giant whale lp can wake up one day and say you know what i don't really believe in this anymore i've kind of collected my rewards i'm just gonna rug all the liquidity and dump it's just not possible and that I think we're going to see a lot more protocols think about protocol control value such that instead of incentivizing capital with a token, um, you incentivize the token holders to grant liquidity to the protocol. And then your token represents a claim on that liquidity, but not the right to control it and withdraw.
That that's awesome, and I just want to play devil's advocate, which I almost never do with Olympus, because I'm so in love with it. But I do want to just push one one topic here, right? It sounds like we said, okay, we'll do protocol on liquidity, but we're going to pay stakers very high rewards, right? Like, I mean, ultimately, stakers are helping us uh, maintain this liquidity. Like, but at the same time, I feel like that separation of the liquidity provider and the staker, I mean, it, it does some kind of a mind trick. It does help. I don't have the words to articulate it, but I'd like to hear from you, right? Like, as in... I mean, if I was a very, you know, typical CFO type, right? Like you worked with guys like that, John, in your past life, you know, who are thinking pure capital allocation. They're thinking I have a resource. I'm going to spend X dollars to, you know, um, acquire and maintain liquidity. And I've got this pool two option. I've got this other option where I can own my liquidity, but then I have to pay my stakers very high rewards. In both cases, net net, I might have like a similar cost, but one psychologically is better or at least i mean I've, I've heard the same argument that you said could you elaborate a bit on that like how do you compare i mean how do you think of you know comparing like this pool two versus olympus which i mean yes it does protocol on liquidity but then it also pays stakers uh quite a bit yeah i think we all recognize that the super high apys are not sustainable in the long term and it's a little I think it's a little bit of an experiment in boiling the frog, right? I've al- I've been staked since the beginning for so long now that even as the APYs begin to decay and as the price of ohm kind of begins to converge on its fundamental value, the question is kind of have you trained people to kind of accept you've booked enough gains such that you should just continue to stay staked and you should not exert sell pressure, um, which would you know, collapse the premium long term. Um, yeah, I really like that. I, I really, I, you know, and I think like, I think it's just, I, I really like that, what you said there, right? Like training people to think because I feel like this is kind of where, you know, objectivity, like, you know, I've had these conversations with clients in the past, you know, who were, let's say, unhappy holding an asset at 350 million valuation or something, XYZ million valuation. And, you know, they'd be like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to sell it at this price. And, and I'd often ask them, I said, like, well, if you, ha- you, if you had 350 million in the bank, would you buy this asset right now? And the answer often changes. And it's like, it's this weird thing that happens. Uh, and that's why it's like, I call it like, there are like plenty of these Jedi mind tricks that are going on uh, in, in DeFi in terms of how people think about value and how people think about liquidity. Uh, which brings me to another, like the the, the last topic on, on, on liquidity is like, you know, we've, you, you, we've briefly uh, talked a bit about talk. You, you talk, I asked you, you know, in, in, our, in our pre-prep for this call, uh, you know, what uh, concepts are you excited about uh, in liquidity provisioning? You talked about TOK. Uh, anything you'd like to say about that and, and why you find that interesting? Yeah, I think that's another interesting experiment in, I think the value proposition Tokamak is offering to protocols is essentially we are a more diamond hands liquidity provider than individuals. So we will actually commit using our liquidity directors to pointing liquidity to your protocol, which again is very, very important to bootstrapping almost any kind of tokenomic system. And we'll do so, and you don't have to be worried about instant withdrawals and rugs. 
right? And potentially, you might not even have to pay us as much. A lot of the premium is to kind of attract a lot of capital very rapidly and to try to keep them in place. If Tokamak can successfully make the case, hey, you don't have to pay us as much and we'll keep it there for longer, um, you could imagine protocols, instead of running their own liquidity mining programs with individuals, saying we can pay a slightly lower rate to Tokamak and get a better liquidity outcome. Um, I think it remains to be seen like how that will develop and uh, whether that relationship makes sense because the other part of liquidity mining is getting wide distribution. And so I haven't dug deeply into how Tokamak intends to take you know, protocol liquidity mining earnings and distribute it to its own liquidity directors and toke holders. So the, I have some outstanding questions about distribution. Um, but I think it's another fascinating experiment that aims to create a liquidity black hole and pull a bunch of capital into one place and make it much more reliable and less flighty. Very cool. Um, yeah, I'm very interested in Tokamak too. Um, I just wanted to, um, we don't have much time left, um, but your your thread about the history of money said money should maintain purchasing power, um, but a CPI basket should track different goods. Um, sorry, a different good. Um, so what, what type of goods are you talking about in sort of uh, crypto world there? Yeah, we're in a kind of interesting time in society around the concept of inflation, right? Um, I think technology, it's widely accepted that technology makes a lot of our consumptive goods deflationary. As technology gets better and better, I have this thesis that the cost of keeping humans alive is going to approach kind of just the cost of energy, which itself, if we're doing our jobs right, will approach like basically zero. And so if we have, if it's essentially free to keep ourselves alive, then what is consumption at that point? Consumption is then kind of fully discretionary, right? It's entertainment, it's your DAO memberships, it's JPEGs, it is... Um, art. So the, if the vast majority of our work and play goes digital and NFTs allow for us to create true digital scarcity, I think we have to kind of reconsider our notion of inflation um, because maybe what it costs to keep the human being alive is essentially zero, right? It's very, very, very close to zero. And so what should CPI track in that world? Um, maybe CPI should track like a broad-based basket of discretionary, purely discretionary digital goods. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future, NFTs are like a regular part of human consumption. It's something that we buy just as commonly as we buy, you know, normal discretionary goods in the real world, like clothing, right? And instead of it being a physical sweater, we're going to buy an NFT sweater. And I think right now we're just in a fascinating transition period where most humans live in meat space, which is pegged to some CPI basket uh, of, you know, buying gasoline and buying cars. And then there's some tiny, tiny proportions of human beings right now who largely live on the Internet, right? Who's most most of their consumption is digital goods, digital goods that are increasing relative to fiat dollars at absurd paces, right? I think the annualized appreciation of Bitcoin is like 
and I, I believe it's something similar with with Ether. Um, I think we're going to have to totally redefine SCPI in that case. And that's the other thing that gets me really excited about Ohm is in that world, you're going to want a digital first currency. You're going to want digital first money um, versus something that gets uh, denominated using, you know, a government methodology of picking how much, uh, you know, a quarter of a chicken costs today. And might I add with, with, you know, a flexible monetary policy that around which there's a group of people now trying to build a shared mental model. I, I do feel like for, you know, a number of people, there's just this view that, you know, inflation is just bad and deflation is good. But I mean, fact is like without, I mean, inflation is a really important monetary policy tool. You can't just say like, I don't want it. Like, I, I, I think you'd agree with me there, John. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, it's very, um, very cool. I, I really like the differences uh, comparing Ohm to Bitcoin. Um, and I think Bitcoin kind of went through that same sort of baptism of fire where you you had this appreciation and then these massive drawdowns. But with Bitcoin, there's, there's, there's kind of nothing backing it other than the sort of network effects. Um, is that something you think about, John? Yeah, I I think with with all of these stores of value or money, um, a a lot of it is faith based, right? A lot of it is based on track record, and it it almost feel like feels like Ohm is beyond escape velocity, where we've kind of overcome the early phases of disbelief, and enough people are believers. And again, you know, knock on wood, right? Who knows what'll happen over the course of the coming months and years, but you have to inculcate that faith in the believers for people to not do the rational thing or not to get scared. Um, and that's what kind of is so interesting about algo stables. It's, there's that risk of getting rugged, that risk of a run on the currency will never go away because it's unbanked. Uh, it's unbacked. Um, but we don't have runs on Bitcoin, right? People don't mass sell Bitcoin. Uh, certainly we have drawdowns, but you know, over the long term, Bitcoin has always gone up and people don't mass sell their U.S. dollar. If all if the entire globe colluded to dump all their U.S. dollar and pick another reserve currency, they could do it. But we've just built hundreds of years of faith in the U.S. government and faith that the U.S. dollar is widely accepted and utilized. And so I think that's the long term potential of Ohm is if it becomes so common, so widely accepted that there's this universal faith. We can all look at each other and say, we trust this thing, right? Then it'll be here to stay for a really long time. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. And, you know, for me as well, like, as I was, and for me, this was the first major thing that I bought outside of Bitcoin and Ether. I I was not really into DeFi as such or, or crypto for that matter. Like Ohm was like the thing that, was like a major moment for me and and a lot of it i mean as I, even as i read it like i was like you know i i do i will have to trust i mean there is there is definitely an element of trust i mean this is not as trustless there's an element of you know trusting the team and so you know, i ended up doing a lot of due diligence on uh on zeus in particular just seeing how he's reacting to questions or to criticism particularly around inception particularly around you know uh when things were going bad and uh, I, I, I generally liked, uh, you know, what I saw. I felt like uh, we had a solid founder there who, you know, could uh, 
uh well had a had humility to could take feedback and three you know had a good sense of what he was doing uh one of the th- so one of my la- last question john and we're almost at time is you know you had referred to zeus as a as a galaxy brain which i think he is in 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 your thread uh tell us how, how in what context do you know him how have you interacted with him uh tell us a bit about that I actually have not worked with him directly, but I remember immediately post-community call, I had DM'd him and he had shared some blog posts with me and I'd offered him some feedback. I think what I admire about Zeus as a person is, first, in the beginning, he had the humility to know that he didn't know what the answer was. And, you know, even after protocol launch, he was playing with a lot of different mechanisms to kind of understand what was the best approach to kind of uh, a sustainable long-term monetary policy. And I remember bonds kind of came out of that. I remember there had been discussion about an early direct selling mechanism. There were, everything was kind of on the table. And I remember that community call being the seed of a lot of trust and faith, not because he's he knows everything, but because he's smart enough to know that he doesn't know everything. That is so spot on. Sorry, I have to just gush a little bit then, Mark. I did it back to you. I mean, I, I'm part of like a bunch of teams now and I get to sit in on those calls. A, I mean, yeah, I, I see him. And also like now, I think what's really cool now is like there is a hive mind that is assembled uh, around him. And they're, they're, we're all constantly tinkering exactly on those lines. But I feel like, you know, the more time you spend in those conversations, the clearer it becomes that, yeah, this thing in the mechanism is cool but this community is is really next level but uh, yeah anyhow uh sorry mark over to you oh yeah i was just going to say like i think the founder of protocol is so important like bitcoin you know it's satoshi but he's not real you know we've got zeus but he kind of has to be real because um the protocol has to sort of operate all these levers well at least for now um so yeah i think um i think that's that's it though um unless there's anything more you wanted to add as asfi um john thanks so much for your time i'm no don't really I'm, appreciate I'm it guys yeah no thank you so much just just thank you john like for taking the time really enjoyed uh learning from you reading what you write hope you keep at it and you know if you find yourself in san francisco do look me up would love to meet you in person this has been a really really wonderful conversation really appreciate it guys thanks thanks john that was beautiful um all right uh omis we will have another community interview for you next week Um, but for now goodbye